over the course of the last couple of weeks, we took a little bit of a detour. We had been in a series of messages called Ancient Words Surveying the Minor Prophets, but we took a detour because of Easter, and then we had Murray Tillis with us last week, who came and shared with us how the Passover points to Jesus Christ, which was a powerful thing. And today we want to look at the prophet Nahum. Well, it's very interesting as we look at this because I was trying to figure out how do, how do I tie Mother's Day and the prophecy of Nahum together. And, and I finally figured it out after a sleepless night of tossing and turning, trying to figure out how do I tie this together. Because the message seemingly has nothing to do with motherhood. And it came to me like a bolt out of the blue this morning. Nahum had a mother. That's as close as we get, folks. That's as close as we get. I do want to tell you a little bit about this guy, Nahum. We don't know a whole lot about him. We know he's from the city of Elkosh, which doesn't tell us a lot because we really don't know where that city is. But we can make a couple of assumptions. One assumption is that it was in the southern kingdom of Judah. We can assume that because the northern kingdom of Judah had already been invaded by the Assyrians and most of its people had been sent off into exile. And so it would be very unlikely that he'd be from the northern kingdom, more likely that he's from the southern kingdom of Judah. His name means comfort. And the message that Nahum was going to bring would indeed bring comfort to the people of Jerusalem and Judah. But it was also a message of judgment. Not just comfort, but judgment. Because what would bring comfort to the people of Judah would bring judgment to the city of Nineveh. The best estimation for the date of this book is going to be between 650 and 612 B.C. And again, we can figure this by a couple of things. First of all, it mentions the destruction of the city of Thebes as a past event. The archaeologists have dated the destruction of Thebes to about uh, 663 B.C., so we know it has to be after that date. It mentions, it prophesies the destruction of Nineveh. That takes place in 612 B.C., and so we can, we can get a broad range there. But we can narrow it down even further because it talks about the destruction of Nineveh as being something that is imminent, right around the corner. So it's probably closer to the 612 date. So somewhere between 650, 612 B.C., right in there is when Nahum was prophesying. And finally, the prophecy itself concerns the city of Nineveh. Now, this is interesting. Do you remember what other prophet prophesied about Nineveh? Jonah, right. But Jonah actually went. This is kind of a long-distance prophecy. The prophecy is actually about the city of Nineveh, but it's to the people of Judah and Jerusalem. In other words, he's speaking to his own people about what God is going to do. Now, we want to look at the book of Nahum. Only three chapters in this book. We're not going to try to read them all, but I'm going to do something we haven't typically done, is I want to share with you, to give you an overall flavor of the message that Nahum had, I would like us to read together the first chapter of Nahum together. And so if you have your Bibles, I invite you to open there. Would you stand with me and honor the reading of God's true and holy word this morning? An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkishite. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and maintains his wrath against his enemies. 
The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. His way is in the whirlwind and in the storm, and clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and dries it up. He makes all the rivers run dry. Bashan and Carmel wither, and the blossoms of Lebanon fade. The mountains quake before him, and the hills melt away. The earth trembles at his presence, the world and all who live in it. Who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his fierce anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. The rocks are shattered before him. The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust him, but with an overwhelming flood, he will make an end of Nineveh. He will pursue his foes into darkness. Whatever they plot against the Lord, he will bring to an end. Trouble will not come a second time. They will be entangled among the thorns and drunk from their wine. They will be consumed like dry stubble. From you, O Nineveh, has one come forth who plots evil against the Lord and counsels wickedness. This is what the Lord says. Although they have allies and are numerous, they will be cut off and pass away. Although I have afflicted you, O Judah, I will afflict you no more. Now I will break their yoke from your neck and tear your shackles away. The Lord has given a command concerning you, Nineveh. You will have no descendants to bear your name. I will destroy the carved images and cast idols that are in, your temp- in the temple of your gods. I will prepare your grave, for you are vile. Look there on the mountains, the feet of one who brings good news and who proclaims peace. Celebrate your festivals, O Judah, and fulfill your vows. No more will the wicked invade you. They will be completely destroyed. Fathers, we read this. We ask that you'd give us wisdom to understand it and that you would help us to find your principles to apply to our lives as we live out your truth. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. When you read that, the first thing that comes to my mind is, wow, that's some pretty potent stuff. God's not holding back as he speaks to the prophet Nahum. You say, but that's a lot of stuff. How do, I, how do I get my arms around so much of what he's saying? Well, let me give you the, the condensed version. If we could compile, push it down to one sentence, this is what God is saying. You can count on God to judge the wicked and to care for his own. That's basically what chapter 1 is saying. You can count on God to judge the wicked and to care for his own. Now, I want to show you, just pull out two verses out of this and, and kind of break them down a little bit because it says some things about God that, quite frankly, might have been disturbing to you when you heard them. First of all, verse 2, it says the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and vents his wrath against his enemies. The Lord is a jealous God. Well, this is not the only place in the Bible that mentions the Lord being a jealous God. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, we read, Do not make for yourselves an idol in the form of anything the Lord your God has forbidden, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire and a jealous God. Now keep that in mind. It also says here that the Lord is an avenging God. And certainly God himself said, 
Uh, it is mine to avenge and I will repay. We don't like to think about God as being jealous or God as being avenging. For us, in our humanity, those things have um, some pretty negative concepts that attach themselves to them. If I'm jealous, uh, it, it has a whole, whole range of negative emotions and negative actions that come around that. If I'm, if I'm vengeful, then there's some negativity that comes around it. But we need to understand that God does all things perfectly. And God is jealous because he desires our exclusive affection, which sadly we shower upon lesser gods. God wants us to love him supremely. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. God is the only one who is worthy of our full and complete devotion, our full and complete love. We need to give him that first place in our lives because he's the only one who deserves it. And so God can be jealous for our affections because he's God. Our jealousy is, is all filled with mixed motives. God's is pure because he loves you. And he wants your preeminent relationship to be with him. He doesn't want others to take that. He doesn't want other religions to take that. He doesn't want money to take that. In our American culture, let me tell you, money and power and sex are the three biggest rivals God has. We give our devotion to lesser gods. God is jealous in the sense that he wants you completely. He is an avenging God in that his holiness will not allow him to tolerate sin forever. Now we'll learn something else about God's patience coming up, but God's not going to let sin just go on forever and ever and ever and and not take any action. I mean, we don't do it perfectly as parents, but we might give our kids a little slack, but at some point we go, that's it. No further. And God draws a line and he said, that's it. Eventually I'm going to act. If you notice verse 3, the Lord is slow to anger, but great in power. And the Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. The Lord is slow to anger. Well, that's kind of the other side. You know, God's a vengeful God, but he's slow to anger. The prophet Joel, whom we studied a little earlier, said, Rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. God would rather you turn from your sin so that he might turn from his wrath. But that's not what happens. But he's slow to anger. I don't know, uh, since it's Mother's Day, we'll pick on dads. Some of you may have had dads or some of you may be dads who are quick to fly off the handle. You have a short fuse, a quick temper. Well, it's good to know God's not like that. God is slow to anger. We also learned that the Lord is great in power. Prophet Jeremiah says, there's no one like you, Lord. You are great and your name is mighty in power. And and Nahum lists God's power is able to, to dry up rivers. God's power is able to level mountains. God is great in power. The Lord will also not leave the guilty unpunished. 
Peter writes, they will have to give an account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. There is an accounting that will take place, a judging that will take place. Sin has a price, and it must be paid. And so as we look at this, we can see that he is great in power because he is able to build up or tear down. He's slow to anger because he's patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And he is an avenging God because he won't let the guilty get away with their actions forever. There's a judgment coming. And God's the judge. So Nahum is laying the groundwork here for the judgment and the comfort of God. Because the Lord has the right, the power, and the authority to bring judgment. But he also has the right, the power, and the authority to bring comfort. And he does each of those perfectly. To Nineveh, there would be judgment. To Judah, there would be comfort. I want you to journey back with me 150 years before Nahum to the prophet that you mentioned a little bit earlier, that reluctant prophet that God called and says, Arise and go to Nineveh, Jonah. God told Jonah to go to Nineveh. As you remember, Jonah went the exact opposite direction. God caught up with him. He used a storm. He used a big fish to get him back to where he wanted. And then once Jonah got back on dry land, God came with the same command again, Arise, get up, go to Nineveh. And when he got to Nineveh, God said, This is what I want you to preach. It was a real simple message. He didn't even have to have index cards to remember it. Forty days and Nineveh will perish. Forty days and Nineveh will perish. That's all I want you to preach. That's all I want you to say. Just go up and down the streets. This is your message. Just go and preach it. Forty days and Nineveh will perish. And so that's what Jonah did. He walked up and down that big city. Forty days and Nineveh will perish. And and what he expected was by the time he walked out the city gates and got clear, God was just going to bring fire down from heaven, consume the whole lot of them, be all be said and done. But the unexpected happened. The people heard the message. They were convicted in their hearts of their sin. They repented of their sins, and there was genuine revival in the streets of of Nineveh. The whole place turned completely upside down. They changed their hearts. They changed their minds. They changed their lives. There was a real revival that took place in Nineveh. Now, you fast forward 150 years, four generations, and they're worse than they ever were. Don't know where the slipping started. Don't know where the downward trend, the downward spiral took place. But in four generations, they'd gone from revival to judgment. So much so that God didn't even bother to send another prophet to tell them it was coming. Because they knew. One of the things when we have child dedications, we commit these parents to raise up their children. They need to be teaching their children God's word. They need to be teaching their children godly principles to live their lives. Because if they don't, therein is the danger. We are one generation from a godless America. If parents don't take the responsibility to pass it on to the next generation, to lay the groundwork, to give them those fences, those guidelines by which to live their lives... 
to, to provide discipline in their lives and teach them the spiritual disciplines of prayer and studying God's Word and being part of a local church and sharing your faith and sharing kindness with others and acts of service. If we, if we don't teach it, parents, who is? Now, believe me, school teachers, they've got their hands full just teaching what they teach. It's you who will make the biggest impact. Do you realize surveys are done among teenagers and ask them who has the most influence in your life? And we would all say, well, that's got to be their friends, right? Do you know by an overwhelming majority what teenagers say? The people who have the greatest influence in my life are my mom and dad. We don't even think they're listening. But we're influencing them, not just by our words, but by our actions. And sometimes you look at your children and go, well, I don't understand how you can act like that. And that's when your wife taps you on the shoulder. Says, I know where, I know where he got it. I know where she got it. And so what we see here is the city of Nineveh that had such great promise to be a, a light among the Gentile nations, to share the love and the grace and the mercy of God, a city that had been spared, that had known God's mercy, has now gotten on the fast track to destruction. They are vile and godless people. Now what happened was real. And Jonah knew it would happen. That's why he said he didn't want to go. Do you remember what Jonah said? He said, I knew, God, I knew that you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sin and calamity. God, I knew I didn't want him to be saved. I didn't want him to be spared. I wanted him wiped out. And the reason I didn't want to go is because I knew that's what you'd do. And then the prophet Ezekiel shares God's heart again. He says, do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord. Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? The most vile, despicable human being that has walked on the, the face of this planet in recent years, Osama bin Laden, is now dead. Now, I don't have a lot of heartache about that after what he did. But between September 11, uh, 2001, and the day he died, I didn't do it every day. But I pray that somehow God might even reach him with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, he didn't deserve it. He deserved what he got and worse. But you know what? I didn't deserve it either. And you didn't either. Now, you may not have killed 3,000 people, but you didn't deserve heaven either. God is a way showing mercy and grace. And I'm so grateful he does. But you see, for Nineveh, their time had passed. The clock had stopped. And God's patience had come to an end. That's the great tragedy of this city of Nineveh. Do you realize what could have happened had that revival continued? Had the parents and grandparents passed it on to their children and grandchildren? And they continued to be a light of truth in a pagan civilization? It could have transformed the entire region of Asia had that happened. But it didn't happen. In less than four generations, they became little more than a speed bump on the highway to destruction. When Nahum speaks of Nineveh, of course he's speaking not only of the city, but of the Assyrian Empire. Nineveh was the capital. Now I want to share with you some things about, about Nineveh. This is kind of the overall picture here. 
The Assyrian Empire was established by bloodshed, massacre, cruelty, destruction, plundering, and exiling on a massive scale. They were by far to that date the most vile and wicked nation that has existed. And in their own records, in their own records, they recorded some of their activities. Now, I would not want this passed down from generation to generation. It was part of my heritage, okay? But they wrote it down for history. And this is what it says in the own, their own records from Assyrian leaders. They write of their enemies, I cut off their heads and formed them into pillars. Can you imagine not only killing your enemies, but cutting their heads off, driving a stake in the ground and stacking the heads one on top of another as a pillar, as a monument to your victory? He says of one leader, don't laugh at this, this they, they didn't, the parents really didn't know what they were doing. Bubo, son of Buba. It literally sounds like something a four-year-old would come up with, but that, that was their name, and at that time, it was probably a pretty classy name, okay? But Bubo, son of Buba, I flayed, do you know what flayed is? Skinned alive. Bubo, I flayed in the city of Arbella, and I spread his skin upon the city wall. Now just imagine, you conquer a city, you take its leader, you skin the leader alive, and you tack his skin to the city wall. He writes, I I flayed all the chief men who had revolted, and I covered the pillar with their skins. Many within the border of my own land, listen, my own countrymen, many in the border of my own land I flayed and spread their skins upon the wall. I cut off the limbs of the officers, the royal officers who'd rebelled. 3,000 captives I burned with fire. Their corpses I formed into pillars. From some I cut off their hands and fingers And others, I cut off their noses, ears, and fingers. And of many, I put out their eyes. I made a pillar of the living and another of heads. I bound their heads to post round about the city. When God saw, let's think, this is four generations away from revival. Four generations from God sparing the city because the, the leader sat in sackcloth, sat, put on sackcloth and sat in ashes in mourning and grief over their sin. In less than four generations, we find this. This is what they will be remembered for, not for receiving, not for repenting and turning to God. They will be remembered for those atrocities that they had written down, carved into stone. This is how they were remembered, for how vile and wicked and heartless and cruel they were, how little regard they took for life. This is how they're remembered. And God said, that's it. That's enough. This, in chapter 3, God says something that is staggering. He says this, I am against you, declares the Lord. Now, i got to tell you something. Coming from the God mentioned <laughs> in chapter 1, 
a God who's powerful enough to follow through, a God who's going to even the scales, I do not want him to say of me, I am against you. Matter of fact, as believers, we rejoice that if God is for us, who can be against us? But here, God says, I'm against you. Because of the people that you've become, because the, the, you, you have become putrid in your hearts, you are rotten to the very core. I am against you. There is no more damning declaration in all of Scripture. I am against you. Now, the question is, did God follow through? And the answer is absolutely. And we need to understand Nineveh was a huge city with massive walls. And it would have been hard. It would have taken a long siege for an army to come in and take them. But at this time, God had raised up the Babylonians in order to execute his justice. God raised up the Babylonians, and he sent the Babylonians against the Assyrians. But their walls were so high, how were they going to get in? How were they going to lay siege? They had ample water. They had ample food. They could hold out for a long time until they could somehow get reinforcements to come and fight. But this is what God did. There was a massive flood, a massive unheard of flood that took place that literally washed out large sections of the wall around the city of Nineveh. And through those breaches in the wall, the Babylonian army marched and utterly destroyed the city. God said it was going to happen. It said in chapter 1, verse 15, no, it says they will be completely destroyed. Now, how completely destroyed were they? They were so completely destroyed that no remains were found of the city until 1845 A.D. For nearly 2,500 years, Nineveh was little more than a memory. That was it. God said when the time is coming up, The destruction will be complete, and it was. The place was totally, totally wiped out. Now, here's the question we've got to wrestle with. This took place a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. I mean, this this is a long time ago in a completely distant land, a completely different culture, so different from us, so different from where we live today. How can any of this have any relevance for my life today? How do these ancient words speak to me? I want to share a couple of things with you because I think some principles that we can really draw out of this that I think will help us. First of all, the ultimate judgment of sinners is sure and certain. The ultimate judgment of sinners is sure and certain. This is what God is saying. It, it won't go on forever. Your sin has a price and it must be paid. The ultimate judgment of sinners must happen. It's sure, it's certain, it's going to happen. On the other side of that, remembering what God said to Judah, the ultimate comfort of God's people is just as sure and certain. As certain as there is going to be judgment, there's also going to be comfort. Those are the two things that Nahum proclaimed in a physical realm, in that that nation between Judah and, and Nineveh. These are the things that he proclaimed would take place. Now with this in mind, I want to ask you something. We need to think about this on a higher scale. We need to think about this in eternity. Judgment or comfort, which of those will you receive? When it comes to the end, when the clock has run out, and believe me, the clock is ticking for all of us. 
None of us knows when. None of us knows the day. None of us knows the time. When it comes that time, when the clock runs out, will you receive judgment or will you receive comfort? You see, God's going to judge sin. There's no matter of whether it's going to happen. He, it, he's going to judge sin because, you see, sin is not a minor thing. Sin is intolerable to God. Sin is an abomination in God's sight. Sin will not stand in the presence of a holy God. And therefore, sin separates us from God. But God's compassion is so overwhelming that, that God loved his creation, even his fallen creation, even sinners. God loved them. And so he did something drastic. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to come to this earth, not only to teach us good, but to die for our, what? Sins. To pay the price for our sins. You see, sin had to be judged. Wrath had to be poured out on sin. And so God loved us so much that he said, I'm going to send my son. And he's going to pay the price for Lisa. He's going to pay the price for Ed. He's going to pay the price for David. He's going to pay the price for Jennifer. They need to be judged for their sin. And we all have it. The Bible says all, all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. None of us measure up to the standard God has for us. None of us. But God sent his son Jesus Christ to bear the wrath of God. To take upon him the punishment. As a matter of fact, this is what the Bible says. God made him, that is Jesus, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's how great is the compassion of God. That even though we deserved the same fate is Nineveh. Because sins, whether they're counted in the millions or counted in the dozens, are just as repugnant to God. Just as damning to our souls. God said, go. And Jesus went and he paid the price for your sin and mine. He bore that burden so that you and I might, have to, you and I might not have to bear it. There is an ultimate judgment for sin that will end in an eternity in hell, but there's an ultimate comfort for God's people that will last forever in heaven. Do you know where your eternity will be spent? Do you know whether it will be judgment or comfort you find at the end of this life? If you don't know, you can know. And if you know and you don't like the answer, that can all change today. The Bible says that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That if you believe in Jesus, if you trust in him as Savior and Lord, and you, you, you follow him, that, that you will be translated from death to life, from being in darkness to being in light. And God has been patient 
you know, how many of you have ever thought that the world has gotten so bad you're surprised that God hadn't wiped it away already? I have. Read an article the other day about a, about a father who's having a fight with the, with the, with the mother of, of their baby. And he went and he picked up the baby. And then he began to call, he called and began to text message the mother to say, I'm going to kill this baby to get back at you. And he did. And I read that and I said, how long, God? How long can this world stand when fathers, out of spite for mothers, would take the life of an innocent child? I don't have any idea how long God is going to allow the clock to tick. I don't have any idea how much sand is left in the hourglass. But this one thing I do know. The Bible says the reason God waits is because there's some who are yet to repent. And perhaps you are among them. And what you need desperately to do this morning is to turn from your sin and to turn to God and to accept His Son Jesus as a sacrifice, the payment for your sins. That he became sin for you so that you could become the righteousness of God. If you need to do that this morning, I want to pray with you and for you. And I'll ask for those of you who are already certain about your salvation, that, that this morning, that as, as we're praying, that you might, you might have in mind a friend, a family member, who needs Christ and that you would spend that time in praying for them. Or maybe you know someone in this very room who needs Jesus desperately and that you might spend that time praying for them. But I want to spend some time praying with you who need Jesus more than anything else in the world. And so I'm going to ask if we would all just take a moment to close our eyes and bow our heads so that we kind of block out the distractions. And if you need to receive Jesus Christ, and I'm going to ask you to pray quietly in your heart what I'm praying right now. Heavenly Father, I'm a sinner. I know my sin condemns me. I need a Savior. I need Jesus. So I turn from my sin And I believe, I accept Jesus as Savior who paid the price for my sins, who died for me so that I might live. Father, I receive Jesus. I declare my faith. And I will follow him all my days. Thank you for hearing my prayer, for saving my soul, for sending your son for me. And now, Lord, help me to stand for Jesus. For this I pray in his name. Amen.